If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Job chapter 25. And we'll, uh, we'll continue working our way. We are coming to the end of the third discourse. Then we have Elihu who's going to speak. Then Job's going to respond. Then God's going to talk. I'm excited for when God begins speaking. It's an exciting part for sure as we look at the book of Job. So as we come now, what we see in the page of Scripture is Job's friends are, are running out of gas. You ever do that before? You're, you're talking with somebody, but you're not getting anywhere. And, uh, and I think in some respects, Job's friends are starting to think, you know, well, maybe, maybe Job's not all wet. Maybe, maybe he's got a, a point here. And, and so um, we see that uh, Zophar is not going to speak at all the third time. And Bildad only has six verses. And then uh, Job's going to talk for like six chapters or so um, in response. And we're just going to look, uh, we're just going to work our way hopefully through uh, chapter 28 tonight as we take a look at uh, Job's response to Bildad. But as we, as we come to the, this section in Job, we're reminded that we want to remember to see that Job is in the middle of a spiritual battle. He is in a battle against Satan. Satan says that, that he's going to make Job deny his faith, give up, curse God, and die. And God says, you won't. And Job doesn't understand any of that. And if we, if we think about our lives, there's probably been a time or two we found ourselves in a spiritual battle and we thought, what in the world is going on? I don't understand what's happening. You know, and, and the reality is, life is full of spiritual battles. And God will give us the power we need, the strength we need to overcome. Job, one of the exciting things about Job is Job, all the way back somewhere in the time of the patriarchs, he had uh, a concept already on a relationship with God. And that, <clears throat> it's interesting as a, as a preacher, because we often talk about working our way through the Old Testament, and we see relational things that God has the children of Israel do through the sacrificial system and the keeping of the law, that all is to facilitate a walk by faith where men are, are, and women are trusting God, bringing their sacrifices, walking the walk, uh, not all fully understanding necessarily how the blood of this lamb is made me clean, but trusting that God will do what he said he would do. And as they do that, as they, as they work their way through that, and that walk by faith is what saves them. And Job had that all the way back in Genesis. He said, I, I, I know God's character. Everybody else thought they understood God's character, but they, they, they saw a, a vindictive God, a, a God quick to judge. Quick to anger. And that's not necessarily what the Word of God tells. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't judge. Surely God judges. But but we also know from Scripture, right, God's long-suffering. He waits a long time. Gives opportunity for repentance. And so, as we come and we look, I'm just reminded of, of that relationship that Job has with God. And we see it come out in these next couple of chapters. So it says in chapter 25, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies upon whom 
does his light not rise? He's talking about the power of God and the sovereignty of God and the beauty of God. All those things are synonymous terms. So there's always the challenge. Whenever we, we look at God and whenever we um, focus on him to focus on particular attributes to the denial of other attributes. You know what I mean? It's possible to focus only on the love of God. And not consider the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the justice of God. It's possible to do the opposite. To focus on the justice of God and the sovereignty of God and to ignore the love of God. So the challenge for us, you know the Bible tells us to make no graven image, right? No graven image. We do that all the time with the Lord. We develop an image of God, our image of God. This is how I see God. This is... This is how I see God in the scriptures. And we want to have the broadest view that encapsulates as much of the character of God as we can. Without excluding areas. And so what we have that Bildad's doing is he's going to focus on the sovereignty of God. And and whenever we focus, and that becomes an area of focus, usually the characteristic we begin to drop is his omnibenevolence. His love. We focus on His sovereignty, we lose His love. We focus on His love, we lose His sovereignty. The reality is, both of those things exist at the same time, right? And so we want to to make sure that that our view is encapsulating that. So build that dominion and fear belong to Him. Certainly it does. He makes peace in His high places. Absolutely. Is there any... He doesn't really need a lot of numbers in His army. You guys know that, right? The... The, the Lord of the Sabaoth, the Lord of, <coughs> the Lord of hosts. He has innumerable hosts of angels, right? How many does it take to whoop a bunch of people? Yeah, one. All he needs is one. One, 186,000 Assyrians got taken out by one angel. And he said, I could have called 10 legions. That's 10,000 angels when he was at the cross. So that could have accomplished a a lot of crazy stuff, right? Why didn't he? Because he loved, God so loved the world. Was he sovereign? Could he? Absolutely. But what governed his sovereignty was his love. Well, we see the same thing with Bill Dad's focused on that. And I'm not, and that's not necessarily bad. But I'm just saying, we have to watch when we focus on particular characteristics of God that we don't forget other characteristics. God is more than just sovereign, Right? God is more than just love. God is a little bigger than most of the boxes we want to build and put them in. And we just want to keep that in mind. Now this is how he says this wisdom from Bildad. What an exciting point he says in verse 4. How can a man be righteous before God? The very solution of which Paul writes in the book of Romans. How can a man be righteous? He recognizes the problem. The problem is... We are unrighteous, we are sinners, we are guilty, we have offended God, right? All those things are true. All those things are true. But Job, because of his relationship with God, the closeness of his worship with God, the closeness of his walk with God, we shouldn't be shocked by that, right? Because in Genesis 6, is it 6 where Enoch is? Where Enoch's 65 years old and he has a son. And the Bible says, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. So when Enoch has this child, he developed a relationship with God that was so 
intimate that God actually took him out of the world before the flood, brought him into heaven. Enoch never died. For your Bible trivia, one of two people that never died, but who stood uh, before the presence of Almighty God. So he already, Genesis 6, that's pretty early, right? Yeah, pretty early in the history of everything. He developed, so I just want you to understand, it's possible to have an intimate relationship with God and walk with God through the revelation that God had revealed to mankind even back in the book of Genesis. To have a walk of faith, so much so that God would would welcome you into his family. And a few, nine chapters later, you have the same thing happen with Abraham. Only the Bible says Abraham believed God and what? It was accounted to him for righteousness. They they had an intimate walk with the Lord. And Job did too. Job did too. And because he did, he's going to be able to answer these questions. But it's limited because he doesn't understand what Paul's going to talk about in Romans in the doctrine of justification. All he knows is that somehow when I take this lamb and I offer it for my sins, that makes me righteous. Well, all of that was the foreshadowing of Christ, right? All of that was... And so he had to accept by faith, God's going to do what he said he would do. And so... That relationship, he's going to call it his righteousness and his integrity. We'll see in Job's response. But it's so vital that we see. In order to, you've got to come to verse 4. You've got to come to that before you can ever be saved. You don't understand that you can't be righteous or good enough on your own. Then, then you don't know the Lord. If you know you're a sinner and I need a Savior, now you can know the Lord. How can a man be righteous before God? Or how can... He be pure who is born of a woman. If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight. Now he's going to make a poetic comparison between the moon and the stars and man. And I want you to think about it. The moon has no light on its own, right? The moon doesn't radiate light. That's what he's saying. The moon doesn't shine. We see the moon, but what is the moon doing? Reflecting the light of the sun, right? The same language is used in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul tells us in Philippians to let our light shine. That's the word of to reflect, just like the moon. That moon has no light of itself. He's saying here that the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight. So he says, if the, the things that we see in heaven are, are somehow stained by the curse, right? All creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God, right? That the children of God would be revealed. So, so it's all tainted by the curse. He says, and look how beautiful and majestic and, and awesome it is when we look into the heavens. And then he compares that to man. So how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. So what Bildad understands here is the total depravity of man. That man is lost... And the problem is, Bildad doesn't have the answer. So Bildad's response is, Job, how can you say you have a right relationship with God? But remember what the Bible told us in Job 1 and 2, that Job worshipped the Lord, that Job made sacrifices daily for his children, and he would have made those same sacrifices for himself. When all was taken from him, what do we see Job do? Worship. 
He had a relationship. That's why God could say there's nobody like him. He's not going to fold, Satan. He's going to whoop you. He's going to win. So build that. Now, this is the end of the friends. Elihu's the only one who's going to talk. And he's going to talk for a long time. And we'll get to that later. But, but the friends are done talking. And you hear kind of in Bildad, you know, okay, here's my problem. How can man be righteous before God? And the beautiful thing is, Job's got the answer. He's going to walk by faith. It hasn't changed. The same answer back in Genesis is still the answer today. The difference is how we show that walk by faith. In Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament, it was by following God's precepts of putting our faith and trust in a sacrificial system to make up for our failures. Looking forward through that lamb to a Messiah that's not come yet. You and I, we look backwards to a Messiah who's already died, right? They looked forward, we look back, but same faith. Same faith brings us into that relationship. So when we come to chapter 26, it says, So Job answered him, and he said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? As he's talking to Bill Daddy, he said, Man, it sounds good, but talk is cheap, brother. Talk is cheap. Where's the help? Where's the help? Maybe you guys could have just walked up and handed me a glass of cool water. You know, it's kind of rough out here in the ash pile. Instead of all the arguing. But then Job's going to move. <clears throat> We're going to see in, in verse 4, he says, To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? He's, he's basically saying, look, this is not what you're doing, what you, what you guys have been doing. And as we've been talking, this has been... Uh, um, Tempered by flesh and not tempered by spirit. You guys understand what I mean by the difference? I mean, I can respond and I can even have truth in my response. But if my response is not through love by the spirit, it's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. What, is, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If I, don't, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. If I have all faith that I can save this mountain, be removed... And cast into the sea. That's an incredible miracle. But if I don't have love, it's good for nothing. In Ephesians, he says that we're to speak the truth how? In love. Because if we don't speak the truth in love, then it's just brutality. Now that doesn't mean that, that it is um, less confrontational. It's my attitude. How do I check that attitude? He told us how to do that too. He said, take the log out of your eye. First, I turn that same flashlight that I got to shine on my brother on me. And I go, ooh, ooh there's, there's a little ugly here. I better, I better fix that, repent of that, get right with that. Now when I go to my brother, I can guarantee that my heart is different. Look, when uh, you ever had a fish hook stuck in you? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. And so... So I, I, I'm trying to get a beanie. I don't even remember what was going on. I'm trying to get a beanie out of my closet. And my wife had one of her tea hats in there. And one of her, I don't know if you guys have seen her tea hats, but Lord have mercy, she got, she makes some crazy tea hats. 
And in this particular tea hat, she had used some of my lures. I had been looking for her for a while. Where are them lures? They're, they're hot glued in her hat. Well, when I take my beanie out, this lure stuck in my beanie. So I'm tugging and pulling. Can't get the stupid beanie. That was a good hook. Can't Pulling on that beanie, pulling it. Can't get the dumb beanie off. So what I do is I go and I get some needle nose so I can really grip it. So I grip a hold of that and I pull, pull and it. Bam, I got it off. And when it came loose, do you know there's two sets of treble hooks in them lures? That second set buried under the fingernail of my thumb. Right? Not in the top. In the bottom. Buried. I mean buried to the band of the hook. Buried. Buried. So, of course, Kathy is like, I, she's cheap. She's really cheap. She, she, who told me? Somebody told me. She is tighter than bark on a tree. I just heard that. I don't remember who told it to me. And is that the deal? She's tighter than bark on a tree in January. I can say all that because she's not here right now. So I saw her drive away. She might be out there though. I'll make sure I'll be nice. But she is here. <laughs> so, but it's, I, I haven't. I, I mean that I'm speaking the truth in love, babe. Okay. <laughs> so she's, she in love to save a bunch of money said, I'll pull that hook out. You ever had somebody else tug on a hook? Oh, Lord, have mercy. It, finally, I says, no, I'll do that myself. <laughs> I know when to stop pulling. You have no idea at all. And then I thought to myself, well, who's somebody who would really like to cause me a lot of pain? So I called Jason. To see if he would come pull it out. But I couldn't get a hold of Jason. And so finally I ended up having to go to the doctor. Actually we looked it up online. And this crazy idea online about wrapping a string around the hook. And and holding one end down. And then popping the string like that. And the hook will come out. And I said that is the craziest thing I ever heard of. So I went to the emergency room and paid a doctor $400 to do that. That's the last time. That hook stayed in my finger forever. I'm not paying a doctor. $400. $400. But then, the one fishing family camp uh, a little while after that, and a friend of mine that was up from California got one stuck in his finger. And you know, when I, he, he said, help me. I said, I'll help you, brother. But because I know what that hook feels like when it's getting jerked out of your finger, I was a little more, I don't know, gentle, understanding, loving. You get what I'm saying? So if we're going to speak the truth in love and we're going to shine that flashlight on ourselves, if we've been through a little bit of that pain and the confrontation of that sin, it helps us to be able to be more loving for somebody else. And that's really what's missing from Job's friends, right? That, that compassion, the love, the spirit. You know, there's a lot of flesh, but, but not so much of the, of the Holy Spirit coming through. So then Job's going to tell him. Job's going to say, let me tell you about the character of God and what I have discovered about God. Listen, listen to this. It says, the, the dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. For Sheol is naked before him and destruction has no covering. He's saying there in, in, in verse 5 and 6, it's impossible to hide from God. You can't hide from God in the bottom of the ocean. You don't hide from God in death. You know, there's no escape from the meeting of the Almighty. And then he says this amazing thing. He stretches out the north over empty space. 
and he hangs the earth on nothing. Look, Job 26.7 separates the Bible from every other holy book on the face of the earth. There's no crazy ideal about sitting on the back of a turtle, floating uh, in the water, held over the head by Atlas. There's none of the obvious mythology in regard to it. What does Job say from way back in Genesis? The earth is hanging on nothing. Is that true? Yeah, the earth is absolutely in space. Nothing's holding it up. Nothing's holding the earth up. And Job knew that. How did Job know that? That's right. He has a relationship with a holy God. And God had revealed things to him. And he's going to reveal them to his friends. He's telling them now. He's saying, man, <clears throat> God is in control. You're absolutely right. In fact, he's hung this earth on nothing. And he sustains it and holds it by himself. He goes on in verse 8. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. So what do we know about Job? It's got to be when? It's got to take place after the flood, don't it? Because before the flood, was there clouds? Nope. It wasn't rain. So he says, so we know it's taken place after, that's why we say usually during the time of the patriarchs, around Abraham's time, he, he binds up water in the clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. The clouds hold all this water, but they still are floating in the sky. Isn't that amazing? There's a lot of water in them clouds. I got pictures, I haven't found out about our house, but Yucca Valley is flooded. Flooded like rivers. It, whenever it rains crazy in the desert where there is no stuff but sand, it floods. Like flash floods are nutty out there. It's nutty. Like walls, I mean river where there is no river, a river five feet deep. Flowing mud water. Full of sand and muck. That All that came out of them clouds just raining over the desert in a few hours. Yet those clouds are floating. Yet those, those clouds are moving. He says he covers the face of his throne and spreads his clouds over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters. Do you know that the Jewish people are not seafaring people? So I guarantee that Job has never been out on the ocean. But if you ever get a chance to look at the horizon, the horizon is 12 miles and it is a circle. Just like Job described it. But Job, he, the closest thing to the ocean he's seen is a Mediterranean, which is like a really big lake. It's not a lot like the ocean, just in case you were wondering. But nonetheless, it's, it's one of the oceans, I suppose. It's salty. Yeah, it's something. But... Nonetheless, he says, the, the circular horizon, the face of the waters, at the boundary of light and darkness. So he's like, there's an end. You can't see forever. There's the horizon at the boundary of, of light and darkness. And the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power. And by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. He's talking about this the amazing revelation of the power of God in nature. I mean, think about it. Job saw a mighty wind that destroyed his kids. Probably something like a tornado. So, so he's definitely seen the power 
of nature, which he is attributing to the hand of God. And then he, he points, remember I, the, uh, Bildad talked about the stars and men? And then here's what, here's what uh, um, Job has to say about it. It says, by his spirit he adorned the heavens. The Holy Spirit uh, anointed the stars. And that same hand that placed the stars, also his hand pierced the fleeing serpent or the crooked serpent. Not only did the hand of God make the stars that, that you're talking about in their beauty, but it also formed that maggot you're talking about. That little wiggly worm. The crooked serpent. That's a good way to describe a man, right? Especially post-fall. So he says the same hand. The Holy Spirit moving and and working. And so we have the stars made and all creation put together. But there's only one thing God said that he made after the image of God. One as man. And that image is not erased. It is effaced. It's damaged by sin. But it's not erased. We still, we still have value to God. See, Bildad understood the power of God, but he didn't understand how much God loved him. And that's a pretty important thing to understand if you're going to have a relationship with God, isn't it? Because otherwise, you're just going to think God is all about what you do. And if I do enough for God, I can appease Him. If I do enough good, I'll appease Him. Isn't that like the, the general view that most people have about God? Absolutely. I, everybody I talk to, I'm basically a good person. Man. It depends on, I guess, what you're, what you're judging that by. But if you don't know the love of God, if all you know is the power of God or the bigness of God or the sovereignty of God, and you don't understand the love of God, then you don't know how far God's willing to go for you. The distance that God would travel just to save you, to save me. To save us. But Job understands it. In fact, in verse 14 he says, Indeed, these are mere edges of his ways. He says, look, this is just, we're just scratching the surface, man. Oh, with the, the majesty and the beauty and the bigness of God. We're barely scratching the surface. And how small a whisper we hear of him. What we understand of God, Job says, is like a tiny whisper compared to what there is to hear. If you were to consider God to be the most incredible symphony you could ever hear, and all the harmonies and different instruments and different sounds, but all we're hearing is like the breath before the, the music comes out. That small whispers, all that's all we'll know of God. There's a lot about God to know that we don't know. And that's what Job is telling the Bildad. Bildad, he's saying, man... All this stuff that we think we have, all these understandings of God. If we understand this little bitty bit about God, can you imagine that somewhere in the vast knowledge that we don't have about God, there may be something there that you don't quite comprehend. We don't have all the answers. We still don't have all the answers. If we had all the answers, there would be no debating and arguing between people. We would just say, well, I got all the answers. Don't you know? They're right here in the answer book. There's a lot of answers in the answer book, but there's a lot of answers that aren't given. What is given 
is how God redeems man. And that's what we need. The rest we have to put on a shelf to be announced fully when I see him face to face. When I know him like he knows me. Man, then I'm really going to have understanding. I'm really going to be able to have all of it. And then he closes out the end of verse 14, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? So he says, yeah, Bildad, you're right. He is sovereign and he's powerful, but there's more to God than that. There's more to God than, than what you're seeing, than what you recognize. Now Job continues in, verse, in chapter 27. It says, Moreover, Job continued his discourse. Literally, he's kind of moving to the concept of parable. That word for discourse. He's, he's going to lay out a, a, a parable for us as he goes through 27 and 28. Um, as we look at, at Job's continued response. Uh, it says, As God lives, who has taken away my justice in the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. He's saying, look, I, I, I want to tell you about God's justice and, and about God's knowledge. And all the while, through this whole period of suffering, Job has been pleading for God's intervention. God, help me. And God's not answering. He cries out, God, help me. I don't understand what's going on. Lord, plead my cause. I'm your kid. Uh, we have a relationship. I don't understand why you're silent. And if we're honest, we all have been through those things. Certainly none of us to the extent of Job, but all of us have had times where we called out to God and he was silent. And Job is saying, man, I, I want God's intervention. Because I know never one time, never one time does Job attribute what happened to him to anyone other than God. God is doing something in my life, and I don't understand it. But it's God who allowed justice to be taken away. We know the story in, in Job 1 and 2. Satan came and asked God. God said, go. Who was holding Satan's leash? God was. God was. Job doesn't charge God with a wrong. He says, the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. That word soul doesn't mean I have bitterness inside of me. It means my life is bitter. Is there a better way to describe Job's life so far? He's, yeah. It, it, we would say today, man, my life sucks. That's where Job's at. He's in, the, he's in the ash. His family's dead. His wife hates him. His friends are busting his chops. That's what he's saying, man. My soul. That soul. My, my, my psyche. My life. Is bitter. It's not sweet. It used to be sweet. But now it's, it's, it's bitterness. As long as my breath is in me, and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. He says, I won't blame God. I'll, I'll live my life out like this, but I'm not going to blame God. I'm not going to speak wickedness. I'm not going to curse God. I'm not going to blame Him for what's happening. <clears throat> my tongue will not utter He's, he's made a, a commitment, a decision, and me and God until the wheels fall off. We would say he's wholly surrendered. Yeah. All, all, it's, he wholly belongs to God Almighty. 
Far be it from me, in verse 5, he says, that I should say, you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. He's looking at his friends now, and he says, I'm not going to say you guys are right, and that I did something deserving of this, because then I would have to deny the relationship that I have with God, and the walk of faith that I have had with Him all my life to now. And God, in His relationship, had shared with him that he was righteous because of the relationship he had with God. Not because of the things he did. So he says, I'm not going to deny my integrity. I'm not going to, my righteousness, I will hold fast and I will not let go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. He says, I, you guys say whatever you want, but I know I'm right with God. I'm right with him. I don't understand. I don't have an answer. I can't tell you guys the whys. But I know my relationship with God. Isn't that a good place to be in your life? I think it's important for us to to check ourselves frequently, whether we're in the same case as Job or not. Is my relationship with God right? Am I in a right? Can I say, I am right where I need to be with Him? And then when we say it, can we do it and recognize that it really doesn't have nothing to do with what I do? It has everything to do with what I believe. So, do you really believe? I can't remember... Where I heard it now, I don't remember if it was in the, the Eric Ludi deal or if it was something else that I was watching. <clears throat> uh, oh, maybe it was in the Truth Project when he was talking about, uh, do you really, he was talking to a guy who was struggling in pornography and he says, well, you don't really believe that God's everywhere. Oh, yeah, I believe it. He says, well, that's great. That's the right answer to the test. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating. What's your life look like? Oh, you're on porn every time somebody leaves. And you don't believe God's everywhere. If you believed God was sitting beside you, trust me, that changes. If you believed God was in your conversation, listening when you were talking with your friends, or when you're at work, or whatever, you believed He was there? That's right. (laughs) Things would change. Things would change about your faith. Do I believe? Job sold out, man. He believes. He has got every reason to doubt. Don't he? But all the, all the while, all the way through, he held fast to his integrity. I'm right with God. I don't know what's going on here, but I know. I know this is good. This is all screwed up. But this is good. And that's, I think that's an important thing for us to be considering in our lives. Is this? Is this good? Now he's going to begin presenting the case of the wicked because he wants his friends to realize, look, I don't, I don't disagree with everything you say. The difference, remember I've been sharing with you guys, the difference between his friends and Job is Job says payday someday. They're saying payday now. And Job said you can't always tell payday now. Everyone, every, the wicked will stand before God and tremble. But the scripture also tells us, right? God's long-suffering. He wants the wicked to repent. Right? He says he, His will, God's will, 
is that the wicked would repent and be saved. Now we know all the wicked don't do that, right? We know all the wicked don't do that. So as we as we look at Scripture, this is what he's saying. Payday someday. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. <clears throat> For what is, what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much if God takes away his life. Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? He's like, look, uh, the wicked, like the hypocrite, what gain is there in their life? Though they may have everything they have, one day they stand before God. And it's too too late to cry out to God then. It's too late to say, Lord, save me when you're standing at the great white throne. It's too late. Job is saying, look, there will be a judgment. Will he delight himself in the Almighty? No. It's too late. Will he constantly or consistently call on God? No, he's dead. It's too late. Judgment day, someday. Then Job says, look, listen, I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty? I will not conceal. Surely, all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? Job says, let me instruct you. Because of Job's relationship with God, he says, you guys don't really understand. You guys have this this religious experience or this religious system that you have put all your faith in. So if I fulfill this religious system, then I have a relationship with God. And Job says, it's not the system. It's Him. It's not that I live a basically good life. It's Him. It's recognizing I need His covering. It's recognizing I'm unrighteous. Job's friends would say, though man is unrighteous, most of his friends would say, but we're righteous. So he's saying, look, you guys guys need to receive, you need to understand what God is really all about. And judgment is coming for the wicked. Look in verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God, and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. Though the wicked may have big, large families and they may live, judgment comes. How long did the Lord wait for the Canaanites? 400 years. And what did He use to judge them? The sword. When we read the book of Revelation and the opening of the first seals, we have the, the coming of a world leader and what follows him. Right? We got the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. War, famine, pestilence, and death. We have, we have all of this destruction. What is that? Judgment. The judgment. The sword. The sword. When, when Habakkuk is, is prophesying and he's calling out to God, he says, God, what are you doing? You're using wicked people to judge your people, but your people are your people. Why would you use... People worse than your people to judge your people. God says, Habakkuk, I'm doing a work in your life. If I told you everything I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe what I'm doing. But God uses, right, to judge the wicked. 
Does the sword come? Sure it does. Eventually. He says, and his offspring will not be satisfied with bread. Now, in the wicked, among the wicked, are they, are they satisfied? Yeah, there's satisfaction for a season, but then there's this emptiness of life without satisfaction. There's this life that says, man, it doesn't matter how much bread I have, I'm not satisfied with it. Doesn't have doesn't matter how many relationships I go through, I'm not satisfied with it. Doesn't matter how much money I have, I'm not satisfied with it. It satisfies for a season. But that satisfaction is not eternal. Those who survive him will be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Widows, you notice widows, plural? Their widows will not weep. And that word there is not there. That word there is his. It's singular. His widows will not weep. It's, it's talking about men having multiple wives and living in wickedness and their wives not mourning them after they're gone. He says in verse 16, Though he heaps up silver like the dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just are going to wear it. You got all this stuff. Solomon said the same thing. I got so much gold and silver, I don't even count it no more. And then Solomon said, but I'm going to die. And somebody else is going to get it all. And the guy who gets it, he might be a fool. Turns out he was. And he's going to lose it all. All it took was one generation for Israel to go from probably the richest nation on earth to third world. How long do you think it's going to take us? Took Israel one generation. From Solomon through Rehoboam. They started counting the gold again. They didn't have so much. It wasn't like stones. People weren't just throwing the gold out in the street. Oh, I'm so tired of having all this gold. They weren't doing it anymore. In fact, you go a little further in the story and you see him spending gold on a bag of bird dung. Sound like a good thing to buy? Because they didn't have any food. So they were buying pigeon dung. So they would have something to eat. Doesn't take long to go from witches, riches to nothing. He says, you pile up all this stuff, but you don't get to keep it. He builds his house like a moth. Like a booth, which a watchman makes. And the rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he's no more. Remember Jesus told the story of a rich man who was, who was bringing in his great harvest. And he said, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to build more barns. I'm going to get more stuff. And then after I fill up all those barns, I'll take my rest. And Jesus said, thou fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. I spent my whole life after stuff. And tonight I give an account for my life. Too late to go back. Too late to change my priorities. Too late. This is what Job is saying about the wicked. He says in, in verse 20, Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls him and does not spare. He flees desperately from his power. 
It's all life is moving from one tragedy to the next tragedy. And what was it all for? If you don't have a relationship with God, what was it all for? I'm just taking my beating. Taking my beating and life is hard and then you die. And that's the, that's the philosophy and that's the, the hope of the wicked man. Men will clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. You ever seen how quick you go from hero to zero? One day they're applauding, oh, you're the greatest. And it don't always take very long before they're hissing. <sighs> Sticking out their tongue and saying, oh, hero to zero. That's right. From, oh, Jesus, laying down their coats and their palm branches to crucify him. Didn't take long. Then in, in, in chapter 28, as he continues in this, in this vein, this is what he's going to say. Here's the keys in, in 28 verse 12 and 28 verse 20. It says, where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? He, he now is going to say, now look, I, I'm sharing with you about, about what God's like and I'm sharing with you about the place of the wicked. But if you don't have any understanding... If you don't have any wisdom, it's, it's waste. And, and this is what he says in chapter 28. Surely there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man can put an end to darkness and search every recess for ore in the shadows or in the darkness and in the shadow of death. For all that sparkly stuff, man is willing to mine the depths of the earth. To overcome the dangers so that they can hold on to that glittery stuff. Is man willing to dig that much for wisdom? For understanding? And that's his point. He's saying, look, hey, we mine the earth. We work and we'll find gold. But we don't want to put any work in to understanding or wisdom. He says he breaks open a, a shaft away from the people. He's smart enough to know that I don't want to put a big hole into the depths of the earth right next to town. In places forgotten by feet. And they hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. And as for the earth, when it comes, uh, from it comes bread. But underneath it, is turned up as by fire. And the stones are the source of the sapphires, and it contains gold dust. You have all these experiences, experiences of mining, experiences of digging, experiences of, of baking bread, experiences of, of uh, purifying gold and, and stones. You have all these experiences and all this danger, but still no wisdom and understanding. Then he looks to the, to the animals. He says that that path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden in it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He says you can't even find an example of it in the animal kingdoms. 
The animal kingdoms will not teach you about wisdom and understanding. Instinct, maybe. But not wisdom. Not understanding. So Job, he goes on, thinks about our accomplishments. Man, he puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden he brings forth to light. If you ever have a chance to go to Corinth, they dug a trench across the isthmus of Corinth so that boats could travel from one side to the other without going around the the horn of, I forget what it's called, but where ships were getting wrecked. So they dug a trench down deep enough for the for it to fill up with water and you have a canal just like the Panama Canal only they did it in the ancient world without excavators or concrete they just dug it and they used it he said look man's able to to think and do all these things all these accomplishments but all these accomplishments don't bring wisdom or understanding So he asks the question, well, where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. He goes on, the deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. So man doesn't understand where to find it. Is it in the ocean? No. Is it in the depths of the earth? No. Where is wisdom and understanding? Can I buy it? Verse 15, it cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, which was a very uh, pricey gold at the time, or in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it. I can't buy it with gold. I can't buy it with silver. Nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. Uh, If you spend much time in the Word, you will be familiar with that phrase. That's going to come up twice in the Proverbs, multiple of places, multiple of places throughout the Word. Its price is far above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. See, mankind doesn't understand the value of wisdom, especially today. Mankind does not understand the value of wisdom. Well, mankind is more than willing to spend 60, 80 grand to go buy a degree, a piece of paper from an institution that probably had a foundation somewhere in its past of teaching the Word of God, but has long since left all of that behind. And they'll take that piece of paper and they'll hang it on their wall and they'll say, I have bought wisdom and understanding. But according to Job, you don't have anything. You just spent a bunch of money for nothing. You don't have wisdom and understanding. And then verse 20, he says again, From where then does wisdom come? 
Where is the place of understanding? So Job is saying, we need it. We need wisdom. We need understanding. But it's not found under the ground in the mining. It's not found in our accomplishments. It's not found in the things that we do. It's not able to be bought by money. Where is this wisdom and understanding that we can grasp it, that we can lay hold? In verse 21, he says, It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Man just can't see it. Destruction and death say, We have heard a report about it with our ears. We heard that there's wisdom out there. We've heard of understanding, but, but we're not sure where it is. Verse 23. But God understands its way, and He knows its place. You see, God is the source of all wisdom and understanding. In a nation that was once ruled by God, who has forsaken her God, has lost all wisdom and understanding. I don't care how long you go to school. I don't care how good you are with quadratic equations or quantum physics. You don't have wisdom or understanding if at the end of your day you say, there is no God. For who has said that? The Bible declares the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Isn't that what the educational institutions around our country proclaim? And the kids who go, believe me, I think there's value in in an education. But that's not the source of wisdom. It's not the source of life. It's not the source of light. It's not the source of a good life. God's the source of wisdom. Now unfortunately, some people think that in order to have God, you have to check your mind at the door. It kind of blows my mind. Do you know every Ivy League school started as a seminary to train pastors. Not some. Every one of them. Every one of them became an institution to further the depth and understanding of the Word of God. They were that because there was a need, a necessity man uh, saw within the church of mining the depths of the Word of God. But they've left that behind a long time ago. It won't be long, folks, and they're not going to have the Pledge of Allegiance. And if they do, it won't have the line in it, One Nation Under God. We live in a post-Christian nation. Some people think we can get that back. I don't think we can. I think that's gone. If we want to get it back, I can tell you how to do it. But people don't like it. you got to cross the street and tell your neighbor about Jesus. you got to walk across the aisle in the grocery store and tell that person 
who Jesus is and what He's doing in your life. There's always a cycle. In that cycle, when we come to post-Christianity and the, and the world begins to crumble and shatter because of its own wisdom and understanding, it will be ripe again for harvest. If there's anybody of faith left when it's over. That's where a lot of Europe is today. You know, Europe was the, the ground of the Reformation. Our understanding of Scripture all came from them. And all those churches are closed. If mankind tells us anything about history, he tells us this. We have a propensity to not learn from it. It's coming. Because we think, like Job's friends, wisdom is found someplace else. But it's not found in this. It's not found in Him. It's not found in that relationship. But that's what the, God, the Word of God declares. Listen to what it says in verse 24. For He looks to the end of the earth and sees under the whole heavens. What is there that God does not know? Every once in a while, I make comments just to melt your noodle. So, I owe you one. I owe you one. So, God knows everything. If God knows everything, and He knows every choice you're ever going to make, then your choice is fixed. It can't be fluid. Because if your choice was fluid, then God wouldn't know it. But God knows it all. He doesn't take away your choice. God just knows it. You don't know it yet. But you will. In God there is wisdom. In Him there is understanding. Not only does God know your choice, God knows why you're going to do that dumb thing. And... He knows the road to redemption. And he knows what he's going to work out of it in the future. But we don't know any of that. We're stuck in our despair going, oh, what are we going to do now? But God's already got it solved. He knows the end from the beginning. All wisdom and understanding is with him. He knows to establish a weight for the wind. That just blows my mind. And in a portion to the waters by measure. But God doesn't let too much water be in the ocean. He doesn't let too much water be here and there. Occasionally we have flooding. That's not the same thing. God sets the boundaries. The earth is not covered by water. Ever. Never again. When He made a law for the rain... And a path for the thunderbolt. Do you know that thunderbolt followed a path? It's crazy. Word of God is absolutely true. Then he saw wisdom and declared it. 
He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. Man's efforts can never produce wisdom. God is the source of all wisdom. So he answers the question for the seeking of wisdom in verse 28. And to man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. The fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God. Proverbs tells us the same thing. Do you know that the Bible tells us who wisdom is? Wisdom is incarnate. Wisdom wore flesh. According to Colossians, all wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. All the stores of wisdom and understanding are in Him. Everything that Job is saying points to a relational relationship with God. And not a religious concept of if I do this and I do this and I'm okay and if I don't do that I'm not okay. Everything points to relationship. Man, I gotta, I gotta know Him. I gotta know Him. You can spend your whole life in the pursuit of God and it will not be a wasted life. You spend your whole life plumbing the depths of His love for us. And it will not be a wasted life. And Job wants his friends to know. They will by the time it's over. He wants his friends to know why he could hold fast to his integrity in the midst of losing it all. When everyone is pointing to him and saying, Job, you're losing it all because you're a sinner. You're losing it all because you screwed up. You made God mad. And Job says, nope, that's not true. I know God. I have a relationship with Him. I'm still righteous in God's eyes. And we might say Job's being arrogant except for the fact that God said, hey, Job's still righteous in my eyes. So he was right. Job wants his friends to know that integrity, that righteousness came from a relationship. Same place ours comes from. Same thing God's been doing all along to bring us into a place where we cast ourselves upon the grace of God. And He lifts us up. That's the call that God is delivering to you and I through Job. And prayerfully we begin to understand the value that He has to give us. Because man, He said a lot of really good things. A lot of really important things that we want to hold on to. And not the least of which is God is wisdom incarnate. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And to turn from evil, that's understanding. He lived it. He wants his friends to learn that too.